a special episode about Gaming the Future, the book and currently ongoing book club at Foresight Institute. The book was published by Mark Miller, Christine Peterson and myself and is available on Substack at foresightinstitute.substack.com. And in the book and with the book club, we discuss how technologies for intelligent voluntary cooperation can gradually bring us closer to beautiful futures. Here's a very brief abstract. Opportunities for bright futures enabled by bio, nano and computing technologies are now within our reach. Their proliferation also comes with risks and authoritarian attempts at control. We explore how technologies for intelligent voluntary cooperation can help us navigate the traps. Crypto commerce enables decentralized, secure cooperation across humans and AIs. This can unlock paradotropian futures of high technology in which valuing entities can pursue their highest function through iterative play. So we use the game metaphor a lot um, and draw a lot on game theory. And in this first discussion, you can hear Mark Miller, Christine Peterson, and the entire book club introduce themselves, what they expect from this game. We introduce a few of our special guests, a few of the Gitcoin bounties that are still available to claim for improving on the ideas in the book. And you can still join this book club by subscribing on Substack. We hope to see you in a future session. The book club's still going on until end of June. And the book will also be available in physical format soon. So now enjoy this first meeting. We cannot start the discussion without introducing Mark and Christine. Mark and Christine, do you maybe want to say words, a few words about yourself? Go ahead, Mark. Okay. Uh, I'm Mark Miller. I'm a uh, early cypherpunk. Uh, one of the architects of the pre-web Xanadu hypertext publishing system. Uh, I'm a senior fellow at uh, Foresight Institute and um, a chief scientist of Agoric. Uh, Agoric is um, a blockchain company that is building a smart contracting system that uh, brings together the smart contracting vision that I've been working on for decades Uh, with the contributions of uh, the, block, the current blockchain world. Um, and, uh, and I'm very proud to be a co-author of this book with uh, Christine and Allison. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm Christine Peterson. I'm one of the co-founders of Foresight, now a senior fellow. I'm sort of the pre-Allison Allison. I did her job before we found her. So... Um, Some of you have been with Foresight since the beginning or almost the beginning, and you know that originally it was founded based on a book. It was based on Engines of Creation. That's what, that's what founded Foresight in the first place. And that book dealt with nanotechnology, AI, space, uh, longevity, and hypertext. Uh, and the reason hypertext was an important topic back then was that um, – This was before the web and before the internet, right? But you could see, those of us who were looking ahead could see, could see it coming, could see the web coming. And because we looked ahead, when those early stages first started appearing, we jumped on it, right? So looking ahead can pay off, right? Now, the world has changed hugely since 1986 in positive ways and negative ways, all different ways. So it's time for a new book to launch Foresight 2.0, and that's what this book is, right? 
This is looking at the future from the perspective of 2022, trying to look into this future and say, where are these technologies going? How is it going to impact humanity, the environment, civilization, uh, uh, our future adventure in, in space, everything? So I'm thrilled about the book. Um, I think it really will lead to Foresight 2.0. And this group, this book club is going to shape that in that whole effort. So whatever you say now, to us right now, we're going to pay very close attention to because we've learned um, that that's how to make foresight most effective. Is uh, And that's sort of one of the principles of the book, right? Decentralization, crowdsourcing, you're the crowd. You're making foresight 2.0 right now. So that's why what you say right now matters a huge amount to us. Wonderful. Thanks, Christine. We just had another participant join, uh, Lawrence, in case you can already hear us. Uh, feel free to introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm um, Stuart at VitaDAO. Um, we are a community that uh, has uh, access to capital and we use tokens to vote where we distribute that capital, namely, um, more specifically, longevity research projects early stage, usually before they're a startup, to help them tr translate them and, and de-risk them for further investments by VCs. Um, a steward just means I'm a member that has been around for longer and, and guide the other members and decide on budgets. And um, specifically, I'm in the deal flow working group. So um, yeah, doing all the all the sourcing and, and evaluating of projects. I mean, not myself evaluating, but facilitating for a panel of experts to evaluate them. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, I know that Mike and uh, Lawrence, you also guys know each other, work in a similar space with similar wonderful technologies. So thanks for joining. Um, and I think you also definitely share this, um, the vision of more long-term technologies uh, flourishing forward. Uh, that I think is larger than this book, but that is ultimately why many of us, I think, care about the ideas in this book. We have one last person, Aaron King. Do you want to say hi? Oh, hi. Uh, yeah, so I'm the research director for Foresight Institute. Um, primary interest is longevity and the biology of aging and uh, recently joined late last year. Um, anything else? Or... <laughs> Is that about it? That's great. Thanks for joining. I should say Aaron is currently building out technology trees that map different technology areas, for example, um, newer technology, but also longevity um, space and so forth. So he's leading like a really wonderful staff of people that basically build a technology tree that um, takes the technologies from where they are right now and tries to actually map capability levels that will be required to achieve really quite high advancements of these technologies. Uh, it will be open to crowdsourcing and crowdfunding very soon. So we'll have its own crypto not, uh, nuts. And I think it's interesting because the moment that we thought about that, uh, Balaji posted on Tech Trees too. Trent McConaughey had already posted on, uh, on the Civilization Tech Tree. And we got together and did a wonderful like hackathon on building better tools to actually map our technology trees across the stage. Um, that is now completed. So very soon, hopefully maybe in the later session or so, Aaron, you can actually show us a few of the technology stack of how to advance many of the technologies that we care about. I think ultimately tech trees are almost like a meta level of coordination. Okay, great. 
thanks, Aaron. Um, if if I'm missing anyone, please do let me know. There's still more people drifting in. But for now, I want to start with Mark and Christine with a brief interview of just like what got them inspired um, uh, to to write the book. It will be a panel. I'll also be uh, I'll also be contributing a bit. And I do want to say that, which is something what I always say when I host things, if you want me to stop talking, you can ask your own questions and I will happily take them. I'm going to give like a little bit of a warm up. Um, but at the moment I see, um, like your hands raised or like, you know, question, question triggering in the chat, I'll give the stage to you. Okay. Incentive enough. Um, okay. Wonderful. So Christine and Mark, could you tell us, or Mark, maybe you, who you dedicated the book to and why? We dedicated the book to James Madison, the architect of the U.S. Constitution, to Julian Assange, the creator of WikiLeaks, uh, and to uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, uh, so those three together, uh, I think, are a very interesting package. the way I, I would characterize it, the way I would explain it, is that for most of the history of humanity until the last few centuries is the history of tyranny. And the human institutions have been large superintelligences that have been mostly misaligned with human interests. And the in the last few centuries, inventions like democracy, rule of law, due process, separate judiciaries um, uh, have really helped change the character of large-scale human institutions uh, much more to much, be much more aligned to serving human interests. And I think the main contributor to this was James Madison in facing the pro- understanding the full problem, being in a situation where really conceiving of the dangers in the terms that we now use the term superintelligences for looking at the dangers of human institutions, being in a history where he pretty much looking back only had bad examples, only had examples of failure. Uh, and nevertheless, trying to figure out architectural principles for bringing about these, you know, for, for, putting these forces in opposition to each other, creating uh, ways to divide up power, to prevent power from getting centralized uh, in a way that was dangerous. So individuals versus states, states versus the federal government, and then in the federal government, the, the, the separation of powers, the checks and balances. And, that, and, and he did it in the context where he knew he didn't know what he was doing, uh, he knew that um, uh, that he was probably getting many things wrong, but there was no better choice. And, and he was betting everything he cared about on the outcome, and he did the best he could. And because he got it mostly right is, is a large part of why we all have decent lives. And the architecture that he built, the the balancing forces of that, uh, that architecture stayed pretty much intact. And in fact, the, the virtues of it got much better in many ways in modern times. Um, 
but the rise of classification uh, for very understandable purposes following World War II really destroyed a central element of that balance, which was the accountability of the government to the people. Uh-huh. people the, the government is supposed to rule by the consent of the governed, as Edward Snowden says, uh, uh, consent of the governed is not consent if it is not informed. But when we say consent, what we mean is informed consent. And under the rise of classification, the total amount of government that's operating under the shield of classification and is unaccountable is larger than what the total size of government used to be. <laughs> um, and uh, the only, the most effective counterforces that we've had against that so far are those brave individuals like Chelsea Manning, like Edward Snowden, and today, especially Julian Assange, who's you know risking his life, risking his, you know, who's who's um, uh, everybody should be following the Assange case, risking everything on the principle of transparency, on the principle yeah. of trying to make those structures more accountable to the population at large. Um, uh, so. Those principles of transparency, creating WikiLeaks, uh, are trying to recover that balance for the existing structures. And then, of course, Satoshi Nakamoto also making use of cryptography, but now showing us this basis with blockchain for creating a whole new institutional framework, an institutional framework that's distinct from jurisdictional government, uh, enabling us to find a new equilibrium for safe cooperation, uh, to build a new institutional framework, um, uh, to solve the problem that James Madison was facing with a new technology base. Wonderful. You already have two comments in the chat. Perhaps just here you go first, uh, and then, yeah, we take the other one. <laughs> Yeah, I guess this is maybe a question at level. Uh, the, the question is, um, Mark, uh, if if, if consent is not valid unless it's informed and human beings are limited in on the of technical progress humanity can consent to, even if it's objectively better than the status quo, and then I guess the shun there is a limit on the information that can be processed by humans and thus some forms of maybe temporary centralization or um, you know, deferral of consent or delegation is, is necessary. I'm just wondering what you think about that. Uh, excellent question. Um, and I think about that a lot. The, one of the uh, perspectives that, that, um, that we express in the book is that decentralization, there is not an ultimate victory. It's that there are always both forces for centralization and decentralization, uh, that every time we have a victory of decentralization, we create a new system in which there remain centralizing forces. Uh, and often we create, at one point in time, new centralized institutions that uh, because they're easier to create in many ways, they, they, they provide various conveniences 
that are not easy to invent first in a decentralized manner, but then those the the centralization of those new phenomena create dangers, uh, create the temptation to corruption. And we've seen that over and over again, that once you've centralized power, that it gets corrupted. And when that corruption becomes visible, uh, then that raises the competitive advantage of decentralizing forces. Um, so it's a, a perpetual value, a perpetual battle to try to decentralize. Uh, we can't get a decisive victory, but we can have a decisive defeat. Uh, the centralization could have a decisive victory of plunging us into a totalitarian nightmare that we could never recover from. So we always have to to fight that. Uh, the de- the informed consent issue. Uh, we all are in a situation where we have to make decisions based on much knowledge that we cannot verify for ourselves, that we depend on networks of knowledge, of networks of reputation uh, and reputation feedback under competition, uh, uh, and a lot of judgment about uh, what forms of expertise to trust, to invest in, um, uh, to make our decisions from. And the main thing about the informed consent is not that we that we individually know everything we need to know to make a decision, but that we're free to, and that we rely on networks of others that are free to, so that the spontaneous order of knowledge and competition and reputation and reliance on credibility of expertise is free to form uh, under forces of um, unconstrained flow of knowledge among them. Well, that's a beautiful answer. I think we should, we also tackle the centralization, decentralization dynamic a little bit more in a later chapter. So when we get dive into the chapters, I think that will probably become relevant again. Okay, wonderful. We had, um, who was it next? Uh, Mike. Hi, uh, nice to meet you. I was uh, just wondering if you agree with uh, Madison's view that direct democracy would cause more harm than benefit. So th- this is one of the things that I have in mind when I talk about how Ma- Madison was in a position of having to do this, looking back in a his- into a history of only bad examples. Uh, one of uh, the quotes from Madison that I uh, dearly love is, Uh, Even if every Athenian were Socrates, the Athenian forum would still have been a mob. So so even if all of the participants in a social system are intelligent and well-meaning, and even if the social system itself is decentralized, uh, uh, if it's method of composing individual actions together into larger problem-solving abilities, if that's not a good structure, if that's not a good dynamic of composition, the result of the composition can be worse than the individuals, not better. Um, 
And yeah. so the, the founding fathers, including uh, Madison, uh, had a, a really deep knowledge of Greek democracy and were largely trying to rebuild the virtu virtues of democracy while avoiding the pitfalls that they saw in the Greek democracy. Thank you. Mike, any comeback or anyone else? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, so yeah, a mob, like, like you mean um, a mob in the pejorative sense, or, or is he just saying that uh, like a mob should not necessarily be defined negatively? If, if because so there's there's a lot of uh, in the book The Wisdom of Crowds by James Sirowicki, um, he outlines a number of factors that will differentiate good crowdsourcing from bad crowdsourcing. So uh, one of the most important rule, I think, is like independent thought among all of the actors. So if everybody was uh, Socrates and everyone would have independent thought, so it seems like um, a democracy would work very, very well if everybody's Socrates. The, the, uh, the problem is with um, people chasing, chasing their tails and, and, uh, and just thinking, saying whatever the person next to them thinks. But so do you, do you agree with the mob comment? Like that, that even Socrates uh, closed. So, so I, so language has changed a lot over, you know, since Madison wrote. So I don't, I've always assumed that that comment from Madison was mob in a pejorative sense. Mm -hmm. And I think the context justifies that, but I got to say, I don't know uh, somebody who understands better what the meanings of words were at the time. Uh, uh, I, I'd appreciate that, but I assumed it was pejorative. Uh, and I think that some of the structures that we see in what Madison constructed that I take to be a reaction to the pathologies of uh, Greek democracy uh, have to do with trying to protect the rights of the individual and various time delays having different portions of the decision-making structure have different characteristic times for making a decision so that a, a quick fad where suddenly the majority believes a particular new idea that the new idea can't suddenly um, uh, cause the whole system to switch uh, in an instant. Uh, so, um, you know, di different um, different chambers have having elections at different uh, intervals, but also the Supreme Court having the lifelong appointments um, uh, and various kinds of decisionals, the difficulty of, of getting amendments accepted, the th some things, the more severe changes requiring much more severe supermajorities. Um, all of these things are, are circuit breakers, are, are kinds of uh, delaying tactics, so that only something that seems to be the consensus over long periods of time has the force of democracy behind it. And especially uh, the various things to try to protect um, uh, minorities against the tyranny of the majority. And like I said, all of these things were flawed. And, and Madison and all the others knew that they were making mistakes. They were just, and, and they knew that they didn't know what they were doing, but they just tried to do the best they could do with the information they had. Thank you. Oh, uh, one more thing. So, so the example of killing Socrates 
is like kind of anecdotal evidence that is um, it's kind of like how the news typically covers a lot of murders and gives people the impression that the murder rate is far higher than it actually is. And they didn't have data about the effectiveness of great democracy relative to a republic. So it seems like a, it could have been kind of biased by that. Thing, which is my, what are your thoughts? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's a, that question is new to me, actually. Um, I just kind of accepted the sense that uh, the overall emergent um, decision makings from the Greek democracy were more pathological uh, and that uh, the the founders were right to try to correct those pathologies. Uh, but yeah, that's a new question for me. I don't know. And I don't know of an objective attempt to uh, uh, quantitatively analyze that. Yeah, it'd be great if we could have a modern experiment to, to confirm or deny that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the modern experiments, I'm, I'll, I'll just, I'll just react to that. Uh, blockchain, the, the world of blockchain right now is full of tremendous numbers of different governance experiments. And a lot of these things are rethinking things from first principles. So I'm not at all advocating that we need to literally follow the structure that Madison created. Uh, rather, with blockchain now, we've got this wonderful new nonviolent context for doing governance experiments, where unlike the 20th century, when we get the governance experiments wrong, millions of people don't have to die. These are governance experiments that people voluntarily join and can easily voluntarily exit. So we can now afford to do much more experimentation um, and and discover new governance principles. One particular form of governance that um, uh, is a tremendous new invention that needs good exploration is like Robin Hanson's Futarchy. It might not work, but it's tremendously clever. It's not like anything anybody has ever come up with before, and it's worthy of being tried at scale. Wonderful. Yeah, we do have the first prediction markets surely in the wild um, already. And so uh, Robin actually, um, Robin and Chris Hibbert, who's also in our intelligent cooperation group, did one of the first like physical prediction markets at one of our member gatherings in 1999. The claims are quite interesting. I, maybe I'll find, I'll find the notes and drop it here in the chat. But absolutely agree. Okay, we had a few comments here in the chat. Do you want to take it you know, into discussion for those who made them? Like we had a, a bit of a discussion here. Um, feel yeah. free to go for it. Actually, I, I just want to bring up one point that this whole conversation reminded me of is that it, uh, uh, that's Emmanuel Kant's idea of a universal lot. So, so that this this uh, conversation, this question that he asked about if everybody is Socrates, then there would still be a mob. What Kant would say is, well does that mob actually contribute towards a better quality of life for, for the people in, uh, who have the lowest quality of life or not? And if, if that mob does produce that desired outcome, then that's a good, good way to go about things. But if it doesn't, if everybody acting this way and, and forming this mob mentality doesn't uh, uh, have a productive outcome, then we should look to other, uh, other methods and strategies uh, for, 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 for living.
Any other comments on the chat? Feel free to take it out here. Okay, wonderful. Uh, well, we have a few more questions to go. Um, again, if you want to ask your own questions, uh, just let me know uh, and, uh, and, and I'll pass it over to you. Um, but, you know, now that we know a little bit like why we dedicated the book to <laughs> who we actually dedicated it for, I would love to, one word that often pops up that is crucial to the book that is not in the title, uh, but that is difficult to understand. Um, and that I think is the, you know, main purpose really for doing many of the things that we discuss in the book is paradotropism. And so perhaps, you know, even though we get into it in a little bit more detail in the later chapters, but I just want to point out, uh, Mark or Christine, if you want to just explain the importance of paradotropism, uh, what it is and uh, why we should further it. Mark, you go ahead. Okay. So we talk about civilization as a whole being a problem-solving superintelligence. And we have an overall optimistic view of the trends of history that um, on the one hand, uh, we start off by showing that graph, uh, showing that uh, extreme poverty has been plummeting across the world at this accelerating rate while at the same, in absolute numbers, um, even while the population as a whole has been increasing uh, quite quickly. So as um, Steven Pinker uh, says, uh, we've been doing something right. It would be good to know what it is. Uh, something's been going right with civilization. Um, and the... When we talk about civilization being superintelligence, we should also be careful about what we don't mean um, and what is often confused with the notion of intelligence is it's not civilization. The civilization is not conscious. It's not an agent with agency. It has no utility function. It doesn't want anything. It doesn't you know, suffer or not suffer but it has a dynamic to it. It grows in a certain direction. So when we see these overall trends that continue over decades and centuries, we should wonder what is the dynamic underlying this such that it continues to grow in certain directions. And especially when it's growing in directions that seem to be aligned with our interests, we should try to understand what is it that's good about that dynamic that we should try to value and that we should try to amplify. So what we're focused on is that the other large dynamic that happens over this period that's, that also Stephen Pinker is um, uh, such a good chronicler of is the decrease in violence. And as we have fewer and fewer violent interactions with each other. That means more and more of the interactions we do have with each other are voluntary. So the dynamic that we're focused on is that people engage in voluntary interactions. People voluntarily engage in interactions in general when they believe they'll benefit and in a world in which positive sum interactions are possible then generally 
what happens are interactions where all the participants benefit. And the result is that positive sum dynamic of growth of wealth, growth of knowledge, and especially growth of problem-solving ability. Um, that the, the overall problem-solving ability of the system is vastly greater than the problem-solving ability of any one participant. So through these interactions, we're composing together different bits of specialized knowledge into an overall larger problem-solving ability. And that's much of the growth of wealth. Um, so the Pareto Troopianism is recognizing this notion, of, starting with this geometric notion of Pareto preference from the economist uh, Pareto, that a world state B is Pareto preferred to world state A. It's, an, it's a partial ordering relationship. It's, it's Pareto preferred. If anyone prefers B to A, and no one prefers A to B. And in when, when you have that, then the um, participants who could move it from A to B uh, have no reason not to. Someone would rather move there. No one would rather not move there. Uh, and this is obviously a tremendous oversimplification of the world, but often the way we make progress reasoning about the world is to pick good oversimplifications to start with, see what dynamic arises from them, and then to correct for the ways that they oversimplified. Um, we have a lot of hands up here. Perhaps we take Jason, Kate, Christine. The um, so the idea of uh, you know the the so Pareto um, moves is is an interesting one, and it's interesting to say that uh, to connect it to the idea of volunteerism. The more I think about how progress actually happens, um, the more I think that in some sense almost none of the moves though are are are, are Pareto optimal moves. Um, almost everything that moves things forward makes somebody worse off in some way. Um, whenever you have a new technology come along, uh, it, you know, it can put uh, a whole profession out of work. Even if something as simple as, you know, one person opening up an ice cream shop might hurt competitors, you know, down the block. Um, and so uh, the more I think about it, the more I think we actually need like a really good uh, definition of um, what does it actually mean to harm someone else in this in this sense or like what? In what senses are we, um, you know, are we going to optimize for uh, these Pareto moves um, when almost nothing, you know, when, when almost everything is actually going, you know, you could find someone who says, nope, nope, I prefer the way the world used to be, right? There's always people who prefer the way the status quo. So how do we, how do we get stuck? How do we avoid getting stuck in just like never doing anything because some, you know, some one person objects to it? Uh, excellent question. Um, and very much on point. Uh, very much brings up a lot of the issues that I have in mind when I say that this is a vast oversimplification. Um, the When we analyze the situation that the various parties are in, we 
is a hard thing to put into words in finding. Um, we weight things towards a, cer- a, a certain kind of accounting that we can call a rights system uh, so that um, the thing about, let's say, um, a competitor taking market share from me, uh, when a competitor arises that outcompetes me, co-op uh, appeals better to my customers than I do, and I lose market share. That certainly does hurt me. Uh, but the uh, it's the fact that those customers are customers of mine is a result of their voluntary choices to cooperate. And if my competitor is cooperating better with them, then their their choosing to switch to cooperate with the competitors is positive sum for them. And what I'm losing is not something that we should think of as my property. I don't have a property right to my market share because that would mean that my cousin, that that I have a property right to other people's behavior. That I have that um, uh, so that one of the ways in which it's an oversimplification is that it's uh, accounting for things that I have a right to more as part of my world state than simply things that are positive outcomes for me that are due to voluntary decisions of others where they could voluntarily decide otherwise uh, and choose not to cooperate with me as opposed to choosing to hurt me. So let, let, let me, let me, okay. More fundamental principle. Um, uh, voluntarism means fundamentally that you can choose not to interact. So if someone is inter- is cooperating with me and I'm benefiting from it, the voluntarism means they can choose to stop cooperating with me. I'm hurt by that transition, but I'm only hurt by that transition because I was helped by their earlier voluntary transition of de- deciding to cooperate with me. I, that was that was probably pretty muddled, but I, th- I think it's it, I think it gets at something that's that's important about the more subtle ways we have to think about the overall dynamic that this Pareto tropian geometric insight is starting with. Yeah. I'll just briefly respond and then turn it over to others. Um, I think you brought up a really key concept, which is the concept of rights. And I think uh, a really interesting challenge that I suspect has, has not been solved in our time is how to define and delimit rights in the modern world with the technology and the industry and the economy that we have, um, which has changed a lot since when, you know, since the founders wrote the Constitution. Um, and we're a lot more interconnected now than we used to be. And that doesn't make the you know, principle of rights or volunteerism, I think, any less relevant. Um, but it just means we need sort of a lot of thinking about, well, what does it actually mean in this new world and, and how do we apply it? I think that challenge was never fully met in the 20th century um, as the world was, was changing. I, think, I suspect that's where a lot of 
today's problems um, uh, came from. And a lot of opposition to progress in general came from the fact that we just never really defined, um, you know, do you have a right to, uh, you know, to w- when you buy a drug, uh, do you have a, a, a right to uh, them already, you know, having tested that drug? If they haven't tested the drug, does that violate your rights? You know, in what sense is there a caveat emptor, et cetera, et cetera? We could talk all day about, you know, issues like that. But um, I think those are really, those are really crucial issues. Thanks. Yeah, I would love us actually to come back to that as we go through the layers of technology, because that's definitely a question that, you know, in terms of when we wondered about centralization and decentralization and how it can permeate through the stack, the different dynamics. Uh, I think this is also an interesting one to to just take into account uh, as we move through the layers of technology. Okay, we had Kate. Well, I think uh, Christine was actually next. Is is it okay if I go or go ahead, Kate? Okay, um, I actually had two questions. Um, one of which is kind of trollish, so I'll I'll leave that to last. But um, <laughs> uh, so when we're talking about something being uh, Pareto preferred. Um, I'm curious what happens if someone else uh, alters your potential choices. So, for instance, wage fixing or um, other kind of uh, kind of monopoly behavior, that sort of thing, in which um, in the case of wage fixing, everything is consensual. Right. Um, but um, if I am trying to, you know, let's say I'm an employee and I'm trying to choose between companies um, I have very limited choices, even though it's only as the result of other people's consensual actions, right? So, you know, my choices are constrained, um, even because, though... Let me, let me interrupt, President, because I'm, I'm not following part of this. Sure. When you say sure. wage, wage fixing is consensual, uh, I'm, I'm already puzzled. Uh, the, the By wage fixing, I assume you mean some outside body preventing mutually consent, consensual negotiation that would result in wages other than the fixed wage. Is that, is that not um, a, that seems yeah, not no, no, no. Let me, um, let me lay it out a little bit more. So let's say, um, uh, let's say that forever, for whatever reason, um, I'm a software engineer and I have two companies that I can be employed by either Microsoft or Apple. And uh, the CEOs of Microsoft and Apple uh, communicate to each other through email saying, um, you know, we are not going to, we are going to agree not to employ anyone for more than this particular price. And, um, you know, I don't know what the circumstances of the world would have to be for me to only have those two companies as my choice. That's probably not correct. Um, But let's just say that I believe that that's the case and that's the case in this situation. Um, So as far as everyone is concerned, all of that was consensual, but it really limits my choices as a software engineer, because now I have no, um, my, my BATNA, my, you know, my best alternative is exactly the same as my first, you know, where I am right now. Right. So, um, how does that play into how you define kind of, uh, Pareto preferred? Okay. Uh, good, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you clarified because yes, that is, that is a composition of, uh, consensual decisions, and uh, this gets into the you know, problems of monopoly and monopsony uh, versus uh, competition on both the producing and consuming side. So when you've got good competition, 
then uh, prices, including prices of labor, uh, go towards the market clearing price, and you've got a good surplus on both the consumer and producer side. Um, when you've got a small number of producers or a small, num- small number of consumers, uh, then they can, you know, in the extreme case, when you've got one, then they can set uh, prices that enable them to claim most of the surplus, leaving little of the surplus uh, to the counterparties. Uh, when you've got a small number, then they can collude to do the same thing. And the only good so first of all, let me mention what I think is not a very effective answer to that. So I think things like uh, antitrust, uh, things like um, uh, various kinds of regulatory system to try to penalize collusion are not very effective. And what is very effective is to simply have more open entry on both sides of the market. Uh, and that a lot of, and that, and that, and, and to have more open entry, we need to realize that regulation is often serves the more, the larger regulatory burdens often serve uh, the, the incumbents by making uh, entry of competitors more difficult, making the, um, uh, competitors start out small and need to grow, and uh, small competitors are much less able to afford compliance with regulatory burdens. So I think that the, the main thing that we can do to increase the, the BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated arrangement, uh, the, um, uh, and to break up collusions is to enable more open entry because every time you have a collusion that sets a price far from the market clearing price, that's an opportunity for a competitor on that side of the market. In the case that you mentioned, an opportunity for a new employer that um, pays different wages and, 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 and breaks the collusion. Um, You know, we saw uh, going back to OPEC with the attempt to do a, uh, um, the collusion to try to set oil prices that le- quickly led to the um, com- competition, uh, the uh, competitive um, opportunity created by those collu- colluding prices. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I do think that um, the property rates in the form that we have now um, may sometimes make it difficult for other people to come into the market. So you can imagine that uh, for there's some rare mineral um, that is incredibly needed by society and someone has all of the the property rights associated with that mineral and it can't possibly be processed or, you know, it, there's no alternative, there's no substitute. Um, and so I could see a possibility in which that uh, having other competitors in the market is just as a possibility given property rights as they are. And maybe that argues for having different forms of property rights for things that are, you know, um, just kind of granted by nature. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Um, yep. L- l- let me actually elaborate on that point a little bit, which is uh, for rival risk goods, 
goods that one one party using them uh, uh, is incompatible with other parties using them. They can only be used for 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 single purposes. Um, uh, property rights is necessary for coordination for 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 preventing plant interference. Intellectual property does the opposite. Uh, ideas are inherently non-rivalrous, and by by creating exclusive property in ideas through patents, especially, uh, what we've done is we've introduced plan interference problems. We've introduced um, uh, uh, the inability of of entities that could have proceeded independently from each other without interfering, we've suddenly introduced the potential interference of those plans by making things that were inherently non-rivalrous artificially rivalrous. That makes sense. Um, So I can ask my second question, or we can go to someone else. Okay, um, so my my second question, this is the one that's a bit trollish given the the audience here. So it, it seems to me that um, there may be a um, potential trade-off between life extension and human progress. Um, and the potential trade-off is, um, you know, um, what do we think was the exact mechanism for society changing their minds, for instance, you know, becoming less violent as uh, Steven Pinker has written about? Is it that people are changing their minds or is it that the population in society is actually changing due to people unfortunately dying and new people being born? Um, And it seems to me that, um, of course, people can change their minds and sometimes they do. Um, It seems like, um, and and we see that within people's lifetimes with, uh, for instance, uh, people changing their minds on gay marriage, things like that. Um, But it seems like for a lot of things, it's really just having this new population that really shifts society. And so I'm curious what people think about, um, uh, you know, if, if, if we are all around uh, in a hundred years and, you know, the, uh, the people that have been born uh, since then, if they don't actually have the, t- the chance to change society in the way that we had the chance to change it today, um, would that actually be detrimental to society? When we, would we not see that kind of progress? I don't oh, know if anyone. Alan Karp has a great quote. He says, uh, "Physics makes progress one funeral at a time." I don't know where that's from. Well, one thing I can't remember. I can't remember the famous physicist who said it, but. Uh, uh, it was said sometime uh, around 1920 about accepting of new ideas. Well, I would say one way is just we need better ways of criticizing ideas, right? Like, so I think that part of the, you know, um, part of the Xanadu uh, hopes and dreams was really definitely just getting us there faster, <laughs> which without requiring human death. And I should also say that, like, just as a metaphor, you know. I think we tend to see of our lives as this one grand story and it like picks up and eventually has like a pointe and then like it, um, it tethers out again. And I think that oftentimes that's an argument, you know, that you're often against longevity. But I do think that at that point, like progress will be so fast that you can choose to or not choose to um, actually move along. And, you know, there's definitely ways in which you can, instead of treating your life as one book with one storyline, you can treat it as one book with many short stories so many different chapters 
Um, and in each of them, you know, you reinvent yourselves. And I know that that's, you know, very hand waving, wishy washy way of saying this, but we do talk about it a little bit in the chapter three, where we talk about a super longevity and how actually living very, very long lives also requires us to change our own perception of identity <laughs> and, um, or may. Um, and I think that that's definitely, it, it's a risk, but uh, it's one that I think, you know, we can address uh, through other means. I see Christine and then Lawrence. Just to, uh, to touch on Kate's question, which, uh, you know, I think it's a real question. I don't see it as a trolling question. Um, two things. One is we've never seen what older people are like if they have optimal body chemistry, if they have optimal brain chemistry. Um, it could be that we'll see more flexibility. I certainly would. I would expect we'd see more flexibility, um, more ambition, more um, interest in new ideas. If we can give older people the biochemist, yeah, I see that Kate is agreeing with that point. I think it's it's pretty clear. That doesn't mean it solves the problem. So let's say it helps, but it doesn't solve the problem completely, which is what I would expect. Um, that leads us back to the question of centralization versus decentralization. How do we make it possible for new ideas always to be heard, to be tried? And that uh, encourages us, again, uh, fits in exactly with the point of the book, which is we need decentralization. Um, that is one way to get around this problem. Yeah. And I think Lawrence has his hand up. Yeah, uh, this is this hits uh, home for me because Vita Dao, longevity and decentralized organization. So uh, I, I think it's a it's a, one of the least um, crazy counter arguments to to longevity uh, to trying to extend the um, health span and, and lifespan, healthy lifespan. Uh, but still, there are better solutions than having. Uh, you know, 100,000, 110,000 people die every day and um, millions suffer and for, for a decade or so before they die. And <clears throat> the, the main thing we should work on would be education. There are, of course, exceptions from people that do actually change their mind, change their career, um, did, and then do their, their best work. And so maybe we should work on making those exceptions um more and more um, often. And, and so, yeah, Christ, I completely agree with what Christine said. Um, we don't know what happens if um, those people that are advanced in chronological age actually have the brain of a young person. Uh, I'd like to see people being young and healthy and if they can keep up with their granddaughter on the dance floor, listening to the same music and culture, they would be maybe more in tune with the new times, maybe less frustrated, have less pain, less groggy, groggy, depressed, or, you know, kind of winding down their life and, and just uh, frustrated that they can't keep up with, uh, with the youngins. Um, yeah, definitely let's not let these people suffer and die because of this problem. And then of course you can say, Oh, what if, um, there's all these counter arguments, you know, what if uh, um, Hitler wouldn't, uh, um, would have lived forever, right? That's, that's another one, right? Because, um, you know, Hitler could have died of tuberculosis at age 20, if not for Pasteur. Does that make medicine as a whole a bad thing, right? There are always 
downsides, but they're like much less than not curing diseases and not having medicine at all. Right. Yeah. Jason, Jason, I think was the next person who had his hand up. Um, yeah, a couple of thoughts on Kate's point. Um, I think it is a real concern uh, about, you know, will it be sort of harder to have societal change or even scientific change um, if, if uh, you know, the old guard never dies off. Um, but here are a few reasons why uh, longevity might actually help progress. So, um, and, and I don't know what the balance of these forces is, but, uh, you know, just, just to sort of think about the forces on both sides. Um, so one is one of the biggest threats to progress in the long term is the fact that population growth has slowed down. Um, we need more brains. Uh, I mean, in fact, we need, it seems that we need more brains all the time, uh, like an exponential growth in, in researchers and research investment uh, to maintain uh, forward progress. And so, um, I mean, having extending lifespan and drastically decreasing the death rate would not do that permanently on a long-term basis, uh, but it would certainly give us some sort of short-term um, you know, breathing room uh, to avoid you know, population decline, which is predicted in, in you know, some models within the century. Uh, so that's one. Um, another is that uh, is the, the sort of the issue of the burden of knowledge. Um, there is an argument that um, one reason why it seems that uh, ideas get harder to find or sort of progress maybe seems harder to make over time is that uh, we just push the frontier of knowledge out more and more and everybody starts from scratch. And so how long do you have to go to school before you can make a real contribution, you know, to science, uh, right? The, the age of you know, first NIH grant or first, uh, you know, first major paper, et cetera, is kind of going up and up. So, um, you know, if you have to spend 30, eventually you have to spend 30, 35, 40 years in school. Well, if that were only a tiny fraction of your life, you'd just have a lot more time to contribute, um, you know, before, uh, yeah, you know, before that knowledge, uh, all that, that knowledge that had been built up went away. And the third thing that I've never heard, um, I don't think anybody talk about is, I suspect that people would just have a lot more long-term thinking if they personally expected to live much longer, um, right? I mean, just think about sort of the, you know, what, what people are, are, can get away with because they just figure, oh, well, that's a problem for a future generation. I don't have to worry about it. What if nobody could think that way because they all expected to live for hundreds or thousands of years? We might just get a fundamentally different mindset, you know, within society. So those are just a few ideas. Mike? I, I just wonder, um, there seems to be uh, like a widespread prioritization of longevity over like cognitive enhancement, because it seems like uh, um, focusing on, on dementia and like the, the fundamental substrates of the mind and optimizing those could solve a lot of, a lot of the problems as well as uh, reduce more, more suffering, I think. And uh, like, like our brain is, basically the same as a caveman's brain and it, it was not evolved for this era. So it's kind of evolved for the, the opposite of the world. They were trying to create one of scarcity where, where cooperation would, would often lead to, to starvation if you're too, too generous possibly. Um, and it, I was just wondering what you think about kind of prioritizing that over longevity or like combining them and focusing primarily on dementia uh, first, as opposed to other types of longevity research, because everything would be, it is like the brain's the source of every, the solution to every problem in the universe. So if you have better brains, then every single other problem in the universe will be solved much more quickly and effectively. 
I'll jump in and say a few things. Um, uh, Popper points out that biological evolution, uh, before the invention of brains, basically every creature embodied a particular um, uh, set of hypotheses uh, effectively about how to engage with the world. And biological evolution only made progress in better adapting to the world a death at a time. Uh, and then uh, Popper has this um, wonderful uh, phrase explaining the, the significance of the invention of brains is that it, enable, it enables ideas to die in our stead. Uh, that that the, it's the ideas that we have that can die so that so that our adaptation better at we can make progress adapting to the world without having to engage in corporeal death to make every step of that progress. Um, so the brain plasticity issue that many people have brought up here, that better brain chemistry might be able to keep us more plastic, I think is is a to have brains that are better able to have idea, to to uh, have turnover of ideas is important. We should also recognize some of the other frictions that are not in the individual brains. Uh, one of the major sources of friction uh, that leads to the you know the Max Planck quote, as somebody pointed out, uh, that uh, Alan Carpenter quoted about uh, uh, physics or or any intellectual field making progress one death at a time is credentialism uh, is that there's too much weighting of reputation and expertise towards official credentialed experts and not enough robustness of these emergent networks of knowledge and reputation being able to switch towards general genuine experts that are coming up with better ideas that are not recognized by the credentialing system. Uh, another aspect we should we should be aware of is that we're creating new minds right now. Uh, it's early days yet, but it's we're far enough along on that that we know that that the minds that we're creating are are very different from ours, are in many cases incomprehensibly different from ours, are more and more demonstrating that they can be creative and that the ideas they can they come up with can be genuine ideas that influence the overall discourse. Great. I love how we're squaring longevity and AI. <laughs> said. Um, okay, wonderful. Um, is there any comment to this? Christine, you had your hand up earlier. I don't know. I did, but it was a, lot, a topic from a long time ago. Mike, you still have your hand up. Is that still true? No. Okay, he's done. Okay, wonderful. Wow, uh, this is already giving lots of food for thought. And I love how Jazir just suggested in the chat, we should totally do blog posts based on the ideas um, that are being generated here. And one thing I can say to them, that's what we have the Gitcoin bounties for. So usually after every chapter, once we start, like this is now the intro 
um, the end of discussion, but we go through the book chapter by chapter and uh, we really want to hear your thoughts on it. And then if you feel inspired, we have Gitcoin bounties on answering very specific questions where we think that we need much more to be done on. Um, and so one cool thing that could happen after this book club is, you know, we take the best ones of these submission, submitted essays and continue publishing them on the Substack that this book is on um, as a continuation of uh, an, an iteration of this game, basically, in a nutshell. Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, that opened up quite the box of Pandora. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would love to know a little bit more, diving a bit into the technologies, right? And we, we will get there like in a deep dive um, later. But this is just to foreshadow a few of the themes in the book that are very relevant. And, um, you know, perhaps we start with Mark, but also I want, would love to hear from you, Christine. Um, you know, what other uh, kind of tools that you thought were very exciting in the past that definitely led us to have better futures of voluntary cooperation? Um, and then I would love to know from the audience, uh, are there any few new ones that immediately pop into your mind? I know we uh, mentioned um, uh, the public key encryption um, group, the uh, work that uh, Mark was also doing back then. Um, but yeah, there may be a few more. So Christina, Mark, do you want to go first? Mark, go ahead. Okay. Um, in uh, preparing for this, uh, One of the questions that uh, Allison sent around to um, was, what are the changes that, that we've seen in our ability to cooperate in, our, in the overall problem-solving ability as a result of, um, of new technology? So, for, so, you know, I started, um, I was already an adult before I saw my first computer. Uh, I was an adult in a world of, um, uh, of, of paper and, uh, and it's interesting to think about the ways in which um, things actually turned out with the movement into um, modern computation and especially um, uh, the web, the the uh, interaction uh, through uh, worldwide digital media, and at Xanadu, where we were really formulating a lot of our dreams about how it would make the world different, we were thinking a lot again about uh, Popper and about the way in which society makes decisions about about the flow of um, of knowledge and criticism and the evolution of knowledge uh, and what we we're trying to do and what we were hoping for is that the coming up hypertext would bring ideas into more direct con contact with their best criticism that we would accelerate the evolution of knowledge and it would do so in a depolarizing manner. Um, and of course, it's now uh, commonly recognized that in fact, with the rise of hypertext and argumentation through hypertext, that there's been this pathological amplification of polarization. Um, uh, so that's been disappointing, but there's an, a, a, here's an observation about that. 
is that we see that amplification of polarization in political argumentation. Um, with regard to, let's say, science and scientific discovery and, and um, that some scientific questions get politicized and then they get sucked into the pathologies of political polarization. But for science that didn't get attached to political polarization, I'm not seeing an increase in polarization. I'm seeing a greater accelerating advance of science and scientific discovery of bringing criticism to scientific ideas of the science evolving in a healthy manner in response to that criticism. Um, so what that says to me is that the polarizing pathologies of hypertext are not general. There's something specific to the political argumentation nature that has enabled the hypertext to, to feed its pathological polarization, and that outside of that, our evolution of knowledge is actually getting more healthy, is accelerating, is not, is not being held back by those pathologies. Um, uh, so I'll just toss, toss that in there as the first observation, because to me, that was the biggest surprise when I just noticed that actually yesterday. Wonderful. Uh, I should say, maybe I'll quote just a, a line here from the book um, where we talk about Zanadu uh, and the inspiration that you guys took from Popper, right? And it really says uh, they, which is the Zanadu crew, take inspiration from Karl Popper, who observed that knowledge, much as biology, evolves by a process of variation, replication, and selection. Variation of knowledge as in tossing new ideas out there, replication of knowledge as in spreading ideas through conversation, and selection of knowledge as the discrediting of ideas to criticism. And so I think, you know, this like evolution analogy, like it, it, it was a really good metaphor for me to get my head around the fact why the individual features that you guys proposed with Zanadu were actually critical. And yeah, it's, it, uh, it was, it was, it was a great, uh, it, it was great context. And I should say, you know, like there's now so many projects like Rome and other bits that are coming online that are trying to do individual features of Zanadu. And so to that extent, I think, you know, we may have something to look forward to there in the future. Okay, wonderful. Is there a question or comment that I'm not seeing? I see a little bit in the chat, but would anyone want to make a comment here? Otherwise, I'll just hop on to a new question and see what you guys have to say for that. Just giving it another minute. So, Allison. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So just to finish, uh, add, add something to Mark's point, which is um, right now we're, as he said, we're so focused on all the downsides of the, uh, of the web. Uh, just imagine for the moment, if we didn't have it, that helps you remember, oh yes. Right. It, it, that would be appalling. Right. So I really feel that we, we forget sometimes that the benefits outweigh the problems. And I personally would still like to see an experiment of micropayments because right now the vast majority of what we're doing is we're basically viewing advertising in the sense that we are the product, right? We all know that. If you're using a free service, you're the product. Uh, I would like to be in charge. I'd like to be the customer for a change and be able to pay for things. I'd be, be love to pay for things. 
I've seen debates claiming that micropayments payments wouldn't help. I would like to see an experiment so that I could actually give it a shot and see if they would help. Um, you had asked Allison for things in the past and how they project into the future. Um, I'm pretty passionate about the computer security question. And I've actually had people ask me, what is the connection between computer security and AI safety or AGI alignment? They actually ask me that question. And I'm, you know, I, as, as you all know, I am not a programmer in any way, but even I can see that if you're, I'll do an analogy. Uh, if you're building a house, you know, you don't work on the doors and the windows before you pour the foundation, right? You don't build your house made of wood on the dirt in the mud. Um, and that's basically what we've been doing. Um, and, uh, it's made our civilization is at risk from it. Uh, and we, you may have seen the website called Web3 is Going Just Great. This is a compilation of disasters in the Web3 space. It's a, a, a continual list of fraud and theft uh, in the millions of dollars continually that is going on in Web3. And the point of the site seems to be that Web3 is a bad thing. Okay. That is not the lesson I take away. Uh, when I look at the f examples of fraud, these are things that happen early in a space before people learn how to use a new tool. It's, it's a sad thing, but it's a learning thing that has to apparently happen. The theft examples are, uh, I believe they generally are computer security related. And so these are lessons and they are like hammers hitting people saying, you really need to focus on computer security, right? We really need to get this fixed. And this is a useful lesson. And actually, although the dollar figures are large, that's in a way a useful thing because we, this is a problem we have to fix as quickly as possible before we get even stronger AI and eventually AGI. Because if we don't get this problem fixed, we will never have AI safety and we will never have AGI alignment because the software will be vulnerable. So this, I mean, this seems like such an obvious point. I don't, I don't really understand how this is missed. Um, finally, um, another area that I was reluctant to come on, come into initially was I didn't quite understand the importance of shielded transactions or private financial transactions. Um, but I see now, now, since we've gone through it in great detail in the, in the series leading up to this book and explored it pretty thoroughly, I think in the book, I see that it's fundamental to this trade-off between centralization and decentralization. And the reason is that whenever, whoever is in charge of, uh, whoever ever is in power in charge naturally leans in the favor of, of centralization. They see themselves as uh, being the right ones to be in charge. They like the income stream that's associated with being in charge. So they, uh, they use their influence to continue their centralization and increase it and try to reduce the, uh, uh, the bottom-up solutions, the crowdsource solutions, the decentralized solutions that, that are new and that oppose the, uh, the old ways of doing things. Um, and it turns out that if you want to make a change, you need to not just communicate information, but generally there's a flow of dollars of, of, of financial value associated with building a movement, right? 
you can't really build a movement with no dollars at all flowing around. And if everyone, if, if the people in charge can watch every dollar transaction, it's pretty hard to build a movement without some pretty serious surveillance going on. And it's natural for them to oppose it, right? And we've seen that already. Um, so anyway, I now realize that we really have to do the shielded transactions that's in the book. Um, and uh, I think that that will just be more important going forward. So those are some existing tech, existing technologies and some thoughts about where they're going. Thank you. Um, one thing, and I know we're already nearing end, the end. I can't believe this has been two hours almost. <laughs> Time really flew by. Um, well, one thing that is piggybacking off of that, you know, we talked a little bit about technologies that, you know, and how they evolved um, uh, and how they, they may allow us to cooperate better. Are there any risks, like any things of, You know, where you think that now this work is particularly urgent, in fact. I know, you know, Christine, to the extent that you mentioned computer security, that's <laughs> certainly quite urgent. Um, but do you see, since, you know, you've started being interested in these ideas and technologies, do you see a specific, like, change of the threat vector? Or is there anything that, you know, particular dynamic that you want to point to that, you know, we may still undervalue civilization um, a lot? Do you mean with respect to computer security? Well, just, you know, like we talked a little bit about what have techn better technologies, how have they allowed us to cooperate better, right? Um, but I would also love to know just what's the urgency of the book? You know, why are we writing this right now? Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about how technology can help us cooperate better, but is there a particular reason why we should care now? Like, are there any specific dynamics in place that, you know, could really lead to better or worse worlds? Well, so, I I go ahead. Sorry. Okay, I'll just very briefly, if any, uh, hopefully all of us are watching what's happening in AI, it's just getting more and more amazing, right? Um, I'm not saying that what we're seeing today is AGI, it's not artificial general intelligence, but the problems from AI don't require artificial general intelligence. I think we're, we can have really disastrous issues long before that happens. And I, I'm kind of surprised they haven't been taking off already, and I think they soon will. So I think it's urgent, urgent, urgent to address this computer security issue. And I'm glad some people are really tackling it. Yes, on to Mark. Yeah, I think that um, I'm very focused on how modern computing, cryptography, blockchain, zero-knowledge proofs contribute to decentralization and have uh, you know, obviously been been fighting on that side all this time. But I also need to, I think we should all acknowledge that there's a race that uh, modern computing and computer networks and all this have done more, I think, so far, have done more to accelerate centralization through pervasive surveillance and the ability to process the data gathered by surveillance, uh, accelerating the ability of state control and the secret state control, um, that, we're, they, the, that these two forces are in a race with each other. And altogether, I think the forces of the dangers of centralization, the dangers of steps towards tyranny, um, are making progress faster uh, and we're coming up from behind and we have to work really hard 
to not lose that race. Uh, so I think that this is getting ever more urgent. Yeah, I agree. We talk about that a lot more in the chapter on artificial intelligence, but we foreshadow the same dynamics in the political realm in the chapters before on cooperation. Alan, you had your hand up. Yeah, so I'm working on several W3C standards groups, and they are very much aware that the standards can either encourage or discourage uh, centralization. And they're working very hard to define standards that discourage uh, centralization. So there is some hope in this space. Mike, you're asking about uh, potential problems, but too, too much decentralization. And I was wondering if uh, you guys think that people are more or less wrong on political issues now than they were in the 90s, because it seems like everybody's really mad at each other all the time now. In the, in the 90s, it seemed when everybody was being fed by the major three major news networks and operating on the base fundamental reality, like which may have been incorrect or correct, um, still there's a lot less anger. Um, was that your impression as well? And I don't know if someone in particular wants to handle this. It's definitely something that uh, I think we also discussed in the chapter on better information systems. Um, and yeah, decentralization also comes with different pockets, right? Uh, and, and that has very interesting, I think, consequences. But um, yeah, Mark, Christine, do you want to handle this? Yeah, I think there was less clearly public anger back then. But I think there was another reason for it, which was, um, you know, if you look at incomes in certain parts of the country, where manufacturing used to exist, uh, those jobs are gone, right? And instead, a lot of people are, are having a lot of serious trouble. They're using a lot of drugs. Their suicide rate's up. Um, many, many problems have increased. So to some extent, the anger is about real problems that have increased. Chazir. Hey. Um, okay, so I, I wanted to to make a comment. Uh, I guess in response to Christine, what you said, I, I mean, I'm into UBI. I think we all are, and I, I have some cool token economic models that I think would make it uh, a cool version of it. Let's say more viable. Um, it, as far as the comments on um, politics, I I wanted to kind of comment as someone who's like in let's say political discussions around crypto. When I say political, I don't mean hot button uh, nationwide interests or issues of interest. I mean, um, politics related to uh, resource allocation for developments, which only blockchain engineers or whatever we care about, maybe Mark or, or Kate or other blockchain people might, might care. Um, I'm actually seeing a, uh, you know, limitations in cognition there's just so much information to be processed and these governance systems are very broken and or in their infancies and um to to mark's comment around the forces of centralization um moving uh maybe more quickly than decentralization or having these these web 3c standards um try to reverse that in my mind um there's a massive massive principal agent problem if you understand these systems and you're uh, trying to support a tokenized project, 
then you want to throw your 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 intellectual um, horsepower behind your token or your community or whatever. Um, how do you incentivize someone to put that same kind of effort for the masses? Yeah, there's altruism or there's principled things, and I think that's that's really great. That's how we got crypto in the first place. Um, but I, I have some comments way farther up in the chat that basically says um, I believe that the right step is to help people become autocrats of their own little state, maybe with their own portfolios, if not tokens. And I think that's really important because if decentralization is to become um, economically rational, I believe it has to come from a bunch of individuals becoming better off, not that the person at the top who knows all this stuff um, just altruistically decides to give the uh, value away for free. I think we kind of do that. But there's a lot of ways in which we really don't in crypto. Very cool. Yeah, we talk about one of these ideas that I know you also know, um, the decentralized autonomous hive mind uh, later in the AI chapter. It's just one way in which uh, these systems could actually produce yeah, a, a more intelligent system. Uh, but I agree with that. And I know we have three minutes left. This time really, really, really flew by. I just want to give Mark and Christine, perhaps like the last, you know, <laughs> the la last opportunity to say, if you would want people <laughs> to take away one thing from the book, right? You can definitely spoil, like, spoiler alert. Um, what would that be? Like, you know, yeah. What is it? The thing I that I would most like people to take away is... Technologies of freedom, technologies of better cooperation and coordination, technologies of, of uh, better supporting evolution of knowledge and criticism, these things are worth building, that no amount of theorizing about them or lobbying for them or talking about them is going to have the effect of building them and deploying them. And we're in a position... I mean, the, the miracle of, of software is that individuals can have a huge effect on the world through actions that an individual can take by writing software. So figure out what to build and build it and deploy it and improve the world by those kinds of individual action. Mm, I love it, Mark. That's great. Um, I guess I would close by saying that I think... Our society currently puts a tremendous amount of emphasis on the word diversity, right? We, we all know we, that it's a, a huge value. It's a wonderful thing. Diversity is great. Um, and I, I would love them to understand that if you value diversity, if you see the value of it, you need to also see that that doesn't work. You don't get the value. You don't get the benefits of diversity unless you have decentralization. Right. If you have centralization, that sort of by definition means you're not taking advantage of diversity. You're not getting bottom up solutions. You're not getting crowdsourced solutions. Uh, if you want those wonderful things, you must have decentralization. Uh, and therefore, you end up saying, well, we need to come up with tools for decentralization, which is what I think Mark is encouraging us to step up to create. Uh, and those include things like uh, shielded transactions. It's just necessary. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, I think I just want to 
you know, reiterate that these chapters come with Gitcoin bounties. Uh, we see this as a very first attempt to just A, making people aware of the importance of the technologies that many of you are building, and B, giving a few suggestions for those of you who are not building things yet of what are a few great experiments to try. And so I think if we, you know, the, the best success of this would be if there's actually a few prototypes that we can use um, that come out of this. Um, all right, we're exactly at time. This was really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, I did, you know, it's an experiment. I had no idea how this would pan out. I am so thrilled by all of your comments. That was, we can learn a lot here, Mark, Christine, and I. Um, thanks for showing up. Uh, thanks for showing up for two hours. That's definitely not a given. I'm already super thrilled for next Sunday. Um, yeah, the Sundays, I think, are now going to become my favorite days again. That was always the day when Mark, Christine, and I used to write the book. And now we're really, really happy to, uh, yeah, to continue iterating on it. So we will be in touch with the next chapter. Next week, we're going to really dive into a few of the ideas. Uh, and we start with the philosophy angle. <laughs> so we start with why is value diversity um why, why does it exist? Why it's important? Because that will give the baseline for all the technologies that we're building. <laughs> and uh, we will probably have a few more of the physical copies too. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for staying on one minute longer. Uh, this was very, very, very good. Uh, and thanks for showing up. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>